all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome one and all to episode 170 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would be nothing less, absolutely nothing less. It could not be anything but the deficient number episode of the SLS cast. Because it turns out that a number where the sum of its proper divisors is less than itself is a deficient number. Guess what? 170 is that deficient number. And with that little bit of mathematical deficiency, I, of course, am Matt, and coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim! And what's going on, Matt? You rebuild your computer and all of a sudden you're in a chippy, chirpy mood? What's going on? I'm just really, really glad that uh, I have a computer today. That's all. <laughs> I got. Uh, I, I have a uh, three terabyte hard drive now with which to store all of our audio and wonderful goodness and clips and sound stuff that we get from our from our friends, like Raphael and the cat and MMK and our MMK gang. As so, so the five clips we have. Yes, yes. From <laughs> it, yes, it was five hundred gigs. They they send long clips. We have to edit down. What are you gonna do? So could you believe three, or not three, maybe 15 years ago or so, having three terabytes of computer space? God. Even 15 years ago, no. I mean, that's just ridiculous. I mean, wait till we actually get into, like, gigaflops. We'll literally get to the point where we will... A, a giga what? A gigaflop? gigaflop? I believe... I can't uh, take no. that seriously. <laughs> if... uh. Is it is it teraflop? It's I know teraflop is one, but I'm thinking gigaflop would be what? one step back. But Why do you go? How do you get to flop? You beca- go from okay, because you're to past flop. gigabyte and terabyte, so it's now like one thousand. Uh, it's like one thousand terabytes is like a gigaflop or whatever, and then one thousand of those gigaflops is like a teraflop. But I believe that of course uh, Miranda Janelle would be able to accurately portray whether or not I have used the correct terminology, but I'm pretty sure it is gigaflop and teraflop. It doesn't sound cool. Like <laughs> I'm not like missing a, out on anything. Like I a think. Barracuda hard drive. Right? <laughs> yeah. So Matt, Matt got uh, purchased a, and installed a Barracuda hard drive in his computer. And I made the comment that why everything tech wise, when it comes to updating your computer hard drives and whatnot, it has like a cool name. Like the Barracuda hard drive. But now you're saying a gigaflop in a teraflop. It just makes it... That's like the dildo of tech you know, stuff. There's lots of, there's lots you know? of really cool, uh, coolly named dildos out there, I'm sure. But let's take a look here. Gigaflop. Right. Okay. So, okay, these are operations. So, as a measure of computer speed, a gigaflop is a billion floating point operations per second. So, floating point operation per second, that's where you get your flop. Is there any relationship to the floppy disk? No. Well, maybe. But all I can see here is where the flop comes from. Because I googled it. (laughs) 
with <laughs> coming to you live with the from the power of the internet or with the what is it? boogie boogie two nine eight eight says that uh, coming to you live uh, through the via the power. Of the, I don't know. It it sounds really cool when he says it. It's like holy crap. I mean the guy. You know, came up with one of the coolest catchphrases ever. It's pretty neat. But anyway. Boogie two nine eight eight. I am unfamiliar. Yes. Uh, Boogie two nine eight eight is one of the ultimate internet revered neckbeards, um, and he talks about pop culture, gaming, um, and entertainment news tidbits and stuff like that, and. Uh, he has a just a huge following on YouTube and Twitch, all that good stuff. Neckbeard. So we go from gigaflops to neckbeards to barracudas, and now we are going down the path of Tim asking you, Matt, a very serious question. Would you ever buy your wife a butt plug? Really would have to depend on the severity of the diarrhea. What if that butt plug had a magic eight ball on it? Well, then it just depends on how willing she is to stand on her head frequently. Well, because, guess what? (laughs) Finally, finally, someone combined the classic pastimes of divination. Divination? Yeah, and ass play. (laughs) So someone combined the classic pastimes of divination and ass play ladies and gentlemen the magic eight ball butt plug this comes to us from dangerousminds.net via the writings of of, of somebody uh but this was published on the 17th of february so do you, do you do you like shake their ass really really hard and then no matter what the question is it's like Outlook not good because you know it's clearly in somebody's ass, or you know chances are chances are yes or something. Well, the funny thing is, is that the first one does say Outlook not so good, (laughs) but believe it or not, you think on Etsy you buy wholesome things for your nieces and your nephews and for your grand and crocheted things for your grandmother, but no. But on Etsy, seller glow (laughs) glow f yourself. Yes, that is a Etsy seller name. Has created a butt plug with a magic eight ball attached to the outside end uh, an outside end is in quotation marks so i guess maybe could people could put the other side not in simply insert the plug have your partner ask a question and then give it a little twerk your answer will be revealed the ball knows all the article says and somebody apparently asked <laughs> quote will this hurt my anus <laughs> Answer. Did did they shake outlook not good? <laughs> Signs, Signs point, point to yes. To yes. <laughs> the Magic 8 ball for a butt plug, for those of you who are wondering, costs only $30. And that is cheap from, again, Glow F Yourself. And this was actually posted by you know, this, Christopher gonna, Bickle. There's going to be somebody out there who's going to do a fucking one man, one jar thing. And I don't know that that's something that needs to happen in this world. But I guess at that point, they probably don't care. <laughs> well, so. if you're wanting to go into exact the logistics of anal jewelry, Commander Fabric here, 17 days ago, actually says that, quote, the eight ball would be also called 
quote, anal jewelry, end quote, Google the term. Once the plug is inserted, the part remaining visible is merely for decorative purposes, hence jewelry. But Jim Minson does want to know, how does it feel? Wait, Brian Jim McDonald re- came back from the grave and wants to know how it feels? <laughs> yeah, and, and, and all signs uh, point to hazy. So, here you go. Wow. That's yeah, amazing. so I that stocking stuffer. <laughs> Practice. It is a stuffer, isn't it? <laughs> oh man, that's amazing. All right. Well, since I guess we've got through that wonderful bit of news of the weird, shall we do some real news? Yes. All right, Uh, and just all signs point to yes. They sure as shit do. Another butt pun. Anyway, uh, I did check the email box, uh, which is of course the show at slscast.com, and we had nothing in there. So see, I checked this time, guys. You 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 don't send shit. I check. You do send shit. I don't check. It's weird. Stop saying shit and butt things. Like I, we need to steer clear away from the anal cavity for the rest of the show. Anything that, we'll, we'll anything that comes out or goes in. How, we'll consult the eight ball and see how it goes. <laughs> All right, folks. Here we go. It's the news. So first up uh, will be the pair of stories that we promised last week regarding gods of Egypt. First up uh, from Variety.com by way of Brent Lang. Gods of Egypt, anatomy of a big budget bomb. And of course, the first line of the article here is there's no surefire formula for success. Oh, man. Uh, That lesson was brought painfully home to Lionsgate this weekend after Gods of Egypt, its $140 million fantasy epic, collapsed at the domestic box office, opening to a meager $14 million. Of course, this comes uh, February 28th, because, again, we were trying to do this for last week, but we didn't get to it, and here we are. Uh, Let's see here. Its failure comes at a difficult time for the studio, which said goodbye to The Hunger Games last year and will end its Divergent series next year with the release of the final installment, Ascendant. They leave a gap that Lionsgate is still scrambling to fill. Uh, Quote, Lionsgate is in crisis mode, end quote, said Jeff Bach, an analyst with Exhibitor Relations. Quote, if you look at what they've released so far this year, nothing has worked. They've had the opposite of the Midas touch right now, end quote there. Now, um, this it is a considerable article. I'm going to go on from, uh, I'll let you uh, read it from there. Head over to Variety.com. Check out this article again by Brent Lang. Uh, it's definitely worth the read. But the idea is, is that... Um, they are desperately trying to find big budget ideas that are very, very, um, basically just ooze sequel potential. And so that's what they're trying to do. They're basically throwing the financial equivalent of Hail Marys at these things. Now, in the case of Gods of Egypt, Lionsgate was very smart with their fiscal planning. And because of tax breaks, incentives, where they filmed and all that kind of stuff, their actual loss on a $140 million budget, they're looking to lose roughly $10 million. So 
that's good because they're not, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, as they say. But the problem is, is that every single time they're taking a chance like this, it's not paying off. And while they're not losing money on it right now, there's no real guarantee that it's not that that this trend is not going to turn around. And so I don't know. I I disagree in terms of them never going to be able to find anything. They've really grown large over the last decade and I think that it is going to take a little bit of time for them to find their footing, but they have enough of a stable now that they can draw um in terms of being able to go to direct markets, overseas markets, or I'm sorry, direct to video markets and overseas markets and stuff, that they'll stay afloat until they find that next Hunger Games, so to speak. But it is interesting that you're seeing all this stuff happening there. And then tying into that, um, again, with Gods of Egypt and its loss of money, uh, we are looking at ScreenRant.com, and this is uh, by way of H. Shaw Williams. Gods of Egypt director says modern film critics are, quote, less than worthless. We're famous, Tim! Motherfucker, we've made it. Yes! God damn it, we are awesome. Alex Proyas says that we're less than worthless. I, I, feel, I, I feel like we have accomplished our goal. We have... We have, we have um, become we've come to the notice of amazing directors out of out of context <laughs> i agree out of context i haven't yes okay i let me go ahead and talk about the article here <laughs> before we go too much further uh let's see here now this uh article is the bulk of this article is really just a Facebook post. Uh it's a complete copy paste of a Facebook post that Alex Proyas wrote in regards to all of the heat and that uh he was taking on these bad reviews of Gods of Egypt. Now, I'm not uh criticizing um H. Shaw Williams here because there is clearly an intro and a conclusion that's kind of framing this so that you kind of understand where Alex Preuss is coming from. Um, so I am only going to um, read uh, the first... Oh, goodness gracious. Well, let's just go from here. Uh, R-rated superhero movies may be the hottest, quote, new thing, end quote, in town now that Deadpool is ruling the box office, but there have been plenty of mature comic book adaptations that have paved the way over the years. Among the best-known examples is 1994 cult hit The Crow, based on the comics by James O'Barr, which is currently in the process of getting a long-delayed big-screen reboot. The Crow director, Alex Proyas, whose other credits include Dark City and iRobot, most recently helmed fantasy epic Gods of Egypt, which arrived in theaters this weekend. And of course, we, as we all know, it bombed in the box office, whatever. It's got a 13% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, it says the combination of Gods of Egypt's box office and critical consensus seems to have been the final straw for Proyas, who took to Facebook to share a vitriolic rant about film reviewers in, quote, this modern age of texting, end quote. Dismissing the objections to the movie's main cast as political correctness, Proyas posits that modern critics will re write reviews based on the existing consensus rather than their own personal opinions. And this is his entire statement. 
so that it cannot be misquoted or taken out of context or misattributed. So I apologize because it's going to take about a minute to read. So I apologize for just reading to you. <clears throat> but it's important. Here we go. Quote, nothing confirms the rampant stupidity of mankind like reading reviews of my own movies. I usually try to avoid the experience, but this one takes the cake. Often, to my great amusement, a critic will mention my past films in glowing terms when at the time those same films were savaged as if to highlight the critic's flawed belief of my descent into mediocrity. You see, my fellow, my dear fellow F-bookers, I have never gotten great reviews on any movie I've made, really, apart from those by reviewers who think for themselves and make up their own opinions. Sadly, those types of reviewers are nearly all dead. I guess I have the knack of rubbing reviewers the wrong way. Always have. This time, of course, they have bigger axes to grind. They can rip into my movie while trying to make their mainly pale asses look so politically correct by screaming, whitewash, like the deranged idiots that they all are. They fail to understand or choose to pretend, I'm sorry, or chose to pretend to not understand what this movie is so as to serve some bizarre consensus of opinion which has nothing to do with the movie at all. That's okay. This modern age of texting has rendered them less than worthless, so they will probably go the way of the dinosaur or the newspaper shortly. Don't moviegoers text their friends with what they thought of a movie? Seems most critics spend their time trying to work out what most people will want to hear. How do you do that? Why, these days it's so easy. Just surf the net to read other reviews of or what bloggers are saying, no matter how misguided an opinion of a movie might be before it actually comes out. Lock a critic in a room with a movie no one has ever seen and they will not know what to make of it, because contrary to what a critic should probably be, they have no personal taste or opinion because they are basing their views on the status quo. None of them are brave enough to say, well, I like it if it goes against consensus. Therefore, they are less than worthless. Now, now that anyone can post their opinion about anything from a movie to a pair of shoes to a hamburger, what the value do they have? Nothing. Roger Egbert wasn't bad. He was a true film lover, at least. A failed filmmaker, which gave him a great deal of insight. His passion for film was contagious, and he shared this with his fans. He loved films, and his contrib contribution to cinema as a result was positive. Now we have a pack of diseased vultures pecking at the bones of a dying carcass, trying to peck to the rhythm of the consensus. I applaud any filmgoer who values their own opinion enough to not base it on what the pack mentality say is good or bad. End the rant there now i the think it's excellent the article uh does kind of hint at whether or not um and i'm going to read this last little bit here it says regardless of whether you agree or disagree with Proyas, it's pretty ill-advised to release such a rant in the wake of the gods of egypt's weak launch since it makes it too easy for people to ascribe the director's views to bitterness rather than clear-headed observation so if you would like to check that out for yourself, because I did not read the entire part of the article that was before or after that, again, please check out ScreenRant.com by way of H. Shaw Williams. Now, um, here's the thing, is that here, here's what I have a problem with. I think that, yes, if you are basing your opinion on sheer political correctness and not taking into account what the movie's about, and you're just jumping on a bandwagon for the sake of jumping on a bandwagon, of course, that's retarded, and you do show your lack of intelligence, your lack of integrity, and you should be taken with a grain of salt. But see, the where I have a problem with the director is that that's not what he's saying. 
What he is saying is that every single person who doesn't like this movie doesn't like it because of the consensus aspect. And then he's lumping all the people who are in there with that by saying that they're on the political correctness bandwagon. And I know for a fact, after last week, neither Tim nor myself did that. And apparently the only people who um, aren't that are people who like his movies. And that's that's not fair. That's completely not fair. Not to mention, while, yes, you can bag on critics for being critics and being worthless because they're going the way of the dodo. Because, yes, anybody can go see a movie. When the majority of people don't like your movie for whatever reason, then that majority does form a consensus more or less regardless of the reason why. It doesn't necessarily mean that if it's based on that political correctness that it's the right consensus, but you still have that majority, and that majority consists of theatergoers, not just critics. And they have the right to not like the movie because you're the one who put it out for them to like or not like. And that is my biggest problem with what he had to say is not that he doesn't have a point it's that he wrapped his he wrapped his point inside of a straw man and so yeah so that's what i have to say on that tim i know you are just itching to get in here so i will definitely uh, open the floor to you for response to this as well as if you have anything to say about whether or not lionsgate is really in trouble after gods of egypt uh, Lionsgate, they'll deal with it. But, Proyas, <laughs> <laughs> one thing, Matt, is to, to keep in mind, and the reason why I don't feel, uh, I, I'm not bothered by what he's saying at all, because for one thing, especially based on, uh, I think, our very honest review of Gods of Egypt last week, that, yeah, we didn't give it a great score. We, you know, we gave our reasoning, and overall, we did find some enjoyment in it. And we and we know this. He's not completely bashing people like that. To me, it's all clear in the little blurb where he says, quote, You see, my dear fellow F-bookers, I've rarely gotten great reviews on any of my movies apart from those by reviewers who think for themselves and make up their own opinions. Sadly, those type of reviewers are nearly all dead. And from there on, he doesn't really go back and use that same type of language, but I think it's that little blurb right there where he does know that obviously every critic out there isn't out to kill him, isn't out to ruin his career, isn't out to be super critical, but there are still some people out there that like to go to the movie theater and be just be entertained. You know, not everybody is super PC. I think that just says it right there. That's why I don't, well, I'm not bothered by it. I guess, okay, so I guess then we are interpreting that in two different ways. Because, it, I mean, it's kind of hard for me, based on the words he's written, to take it any other way than, if you don't give me a good review, you suck. Yeah, I don't see that at all. Well, I mean, okay, so it says, I have never gotten great review. Okay, okay I'll, we'll start here. I'm going to extract the quote. Quote, I have never gotten great reviews on any movie I've made really, apart from those by reviewers who think for themselves and make up their own opinions, end quote. So what he's saying is, the only people who gave him great reviews are those who think for themselves and make up their own opinions. I.e., if you, or I'm sorry, e.g., ergo, if you don't give him a great review, you don't think for yourself. 
Well, no, but then then he's also saying, but not everybody who did not give, or not everybody who gave him, wait, hang on, <laughs> but not everybody who didn't give him a great review were not good reviewers, I guess. Okay, I but Shit, I, I guess, where, where does he say that, though? That's what I'm saying. I mean, he, he doesn't, he does not ever say that there are people who gave him a poor review who also thought for themselves. So so he's saying that, like with, with Dark City, I know whenever the movie first came out, a lot of people didn't like it. But uh, one famous uh, reviewer who saw it and loved it, and from then on was always had his back, was Roger Ebert. I think that's why he mentioned Roger Ebert. Uh, Roger Ebert was a big, poyous supporter, even for uh, with the film uh, Knowing, uh, the Nicolas Cage one that came out in 2008 or so. Nobody else really liked it. Except Roger Ebert. I, I'm talking about like big, uh, heavy critics. Sure, sure. Alex Poyas knows that people like Roger Ebert who go and watch movies to be entertained. Well, just kind of like what I was saying earlier, that do speak for themselves and, again, know how just to be entertained. He can count on those people to fully understand his product or his film or whatnot. I don't think he's saying that, well... You have to be that person, or every person like that will absolutely love every movie I made. I think he just knows that he has some people, at least within that group, that will follow him or that will like you know, what he puts out. Okay, and, and you know what? That's fair. I just think that even though, yes, Roger Ebert, definitely a heavy hitter. But, you know, so did Siskel? disagree with ebert what about gene shallot um i mean there there are also well, yeah and, and i'm know, not trying to and i'm not yeah and i'm not leaving like leonard malton i'm not trying right. to i mean i'm not saying it was only roger ebert i only say again, roger ebert I think, because i know I he was a for me and for me the crux would be if he had chosen someone not roger ebert and not because roger ebert isn't important but i think it would have been fair or or at least for me, it would make it a lot easier of a pill to swallow uh, if he had put someone of that ilk who had disagreed with him and hadn't, who didn't trash him, you know what I mean, uh, and who didn't sit there and, and just jump on a bandwagon or whatever, um, or even be the driver of that bandwagon, but someone who had legitimately had just disagreed with the film for whatever reason and said, you know what, this guy didn't like the film, but by God, I can at least respect his opinion. And he didn't do that. And instead, it was Roger Ebert wasn't bad. Roger Ebert liked my movies. And for me, that 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 merely exacerbates the you're you're not a good you know you're not a good reviewer unless you think for yourself, which means you like my stuff. So and and and, and again, I, I don't. You know, I don't know. I love The Crow. I do. I love The Crow. I, and to, to, in, in my defense, didn't know, uh, you know, as much as I know about movies, never realized it was Alex Proyas before last week. So it is what it is. But to be fair, wasn't a big fan of Dark City. Like I said, I didn't hate it. Minus stretch of imagination. I did not hate it. Um, but I just did not like iRobot. Um. You know, but either way, and, and it's not like, oh, gosh, you know, he was just getting worse and worse and worse or anything like that, or that The Crow was a fluke by any stretch of the imagination. To Alex Boris's credit, they are all incredibly different movies. So that in and of itself is 
speaking to the ability of the director to be able to helm vastly different projects. Like even Gods of Egypt, completely different style and tone from anything else. So I don't know. Just just how I saw it. So when I it guess, comes down to it, it, it the wording, the wording is what yes, gets you. The wording is really irritating okay. to me. So, um, but I would, I mean, definitely. So you've heard our sides, guys, please Twitter us and email us, call us, text us. Just, yeah, let us know. What do you think? It'd be really cool. So anyways, all right. I've definitely killed like 10 minutes here. So go, go, go. You're up, Tim. First up, a passing for me. Uh, not not my passing, obviously, but rest in peace, Tony Dyson, R2-D2's original builder, dies at 68. This is via the Tech Times, written by Louise Chan, and it says this, It is a melancholic day for the robot and android population because one of its master builders, who brought the iconic Star Wars droid R2-D2 to life, passed away. The highly skilled 68-year-old robotics technician, Professor Tony Dyson was found lifeless in his home in Gozo, Malta, after his friends reported police that he has not been seen for days. According to reports, Dyson's concerned neighbor also reported that his front door was left open, and when police made their way inside his residence, they found him dead inside. Dyson was commissioned to build the original R2-D2 for the Star Wars saga, and he built the master molds and eight variations for various uses within the film's plot. But that was not his only famous work. He also had a hand in building robots for Superman 2, Dragon Slayer, and Moonraker. Apart from his accomplishments seen on the silver screen, Dyson also designed machines for big technology companies including Philips, Sony, Toshiba, and owns the White Horse Toy Company. End all quotes there. Actually, there's more to the article. So if you want to read more about Tony Dyson, the original builder of R2-D2, do check out techtimes.com. Next up, from io9.com, that 21 Jump Street Men in Black crossover is actually happening. This is written by Charlie Jane Anders, and it says this, It sounds too crazy to be real, but it's actually coming true. The crossover between 21 Jump Street and Men in Black, which was first revealed by the Sony hack in 2014, is now going forward as a possible film, and they found a perfect director. When this possible crossover was first leaked a couple years ago, lots of people freaked out. But Sony still decided to get Rodney Rothman to write a screenplay for the series, and they liked what they read enough to move ahead. Now James Bobin, who directed 2011's The Muppets, as well as episodes of Flight of the Concords and The Ali G Show, is lined up to direct. The movie isn't 100% greenlit, but production could actually start in June. Channing Tatum and Jonah Hill are both on board to return and will also produce, but neither Will Smith nor Tommy Lee Jones is coming back for Men in Black, and in fact, recasting those roles with younger actors could allow Sony to relaunch the series. End all quotes there. Matt, what do you think about this 21 Jump Street Men in Black crossover being directed by the great James Bobin? Uh, as a side note, really quick, uh, really quack, really quick though, uh, James Bobin will be coming off from directing the new Alice Through the Looking Glass film that should be coming out this year. Well, by God, if there was any way to bring 21 Jump Street back, 
then this would be the way to do it. I think that, honestly, it's so completely outlandish enough that I I, I think it could work. <laughs> um, I also like that they're going to take it into a different direction and not cast Tommy Lee Jones or Will Smith in it because now it allows for it to be... Um, it, it allows for it to have its own direction. It can still exist in that same universe, but have it have its own fun and have their own adventures. So it's, I mean, it's literally just so crazy. It, it might work. So I'm down. There you have it. And next up for me, via IndieWire.com, the playlist, Arnold Schwarzenegger says he might be back for Shane Black's Predator. And this is written by Kevin Jagernauth. Or I guess it's Jagernauth with a Y or, or J I J A G E R yeah Jagernauth. There you go. And it says this: What is the value of Arnold Schwarzenegger to his old franchises once they get a new coat of paint? Granted, Terminator Genesis had problems beyond his starring role, but his return as T-800 arguably only made trying to reboot that property even more complicated. And once the film flopped, Paramount dropped their plans to make any further sequels, so one wonders if Shane Black's upcoming Predator sequel actually needs Major Alan Dutch Schaefer to return. But it seems the character is in the script, and Arnie will soon be meeting with the director about the project, saying, quote, I haven't talked with Shane Black yet, but I'm going to meet with him for lunch sometime soon. Just as soon as I'm finished with Arnold Sports Festival and The Apprentice and all this stuff. But I will get together with him. If there is any news, we'll of course let you know right away. There's also a meeting coming up about Conan, about the project moving forward. In quote, the actor told the Arnold fans, which I guess is a blog or website or something like that in case you're wondering arnie has been tapped as the new host for celebrity apprentice replacing donald drumpf <laughs> that's right donald j drumpf while the conan project is the long brewing the legend of conan which is said to be in the vein of unforgiven end all quotes there oh and it says that the new predator film will be opening, or is slated to open on March 2nd, 2018. So uh, at least uh, two more years before that one gets dropped. So Matt, do you want to see Arnie back in Predator? Oh man, I don't know. Uh, I know you had brought it up before the show. Um, I gotta be honest with you, I'm not sure, but like I said, if it ends up happening, I'm gonna go see it. <laughs> I guess we'll just leave it at that. Yeah, this is going to do it for me. I've got a, uh, another pair of stories here. Um, oh, well, just a quick mention. I'm going to do a pair of stories, but a quick mention before. Apparently, um, from MSN.com, uh, via Variety, uh, by way of <laughs> Brent Lang, um, Donald Trump is supposed to get AIDS in Sasha Bar Baron Cohen's movie, uh, The Brothers Grimsby. And uh, it happens during like an end credit sequence, and there has been some conjecture as to whether or not Sony has asked him to pull it for the American viewing. I just thought that was kind of interesting. Personally, I kind of hope they do, because this is a movie that's going to suffer horribly from being dated uh, already. And if they throw in a reference like this to Trump, then it's just going to make it that much worse, even if it is just a bit in the end credits. So 
Yeah, but whatever. Um, the two things that I really want to discuss, though, from NewYorkDailyNews.com uh, by way of Ethan Sachs and Mira Jagannathan. <clears throat> Nina Simone's brother having Zoe Saldana quote in blackface end quote for biopic is quote insult to our people and their struggle end quote uh the brother of nina simone says the dark-skinned music music legend would be horrified at hispanic actress zoe saldana portraying her in an upcoming biopic sam wayman himself a musician told the daily news that using saldana in quote what we consider blackface end quote to match the civil rights era soul singer in the film nina was an quote outrage end quote now, um, we covered What Happened Miss Simone as one of the documentaries for the Oscars. And um, this particular movie actually covers the period of her life when she had uh, retreated to Africa. And that period of time there where she is trying to put herself back together and then heads over to Europe where she actually kind of gets back up on the circuit again. So it's that uh, bit of a period in her life where it, the film centrally takes place. And it's interesting because while Nina Simone's brother has a problem with Zoe Saldana's being cast, everybody's been kind of giving her shit about it. Um, Nina, uh, from CNN.com, conversely, by way of Lisa Respers France, Nina Simone's daughter defends Zoe Saldana amid biopic controversy. Zoe Saldana's casting as music legend Nina Simone is a stunning choice, and not just because the actress hasn't shown any proclivity towards jazz, or singing for that matter. Physically, Saldana bears no resemblance to the icon, and none of the options present have been appealing to moviegoers. Either Saldana maintains her natural appearance and offers an inaccurate portrayal, or the actress would be made to appear darker uh, and they made her darker they also gave her a prosthetic nose uh let's see here um amid all the controversy though lisa simone kelly told time magazine quote it's unfortunate that zoe saldana is being attacked so viciously when she is someone who is part of a larger picture it's clear she brought her best to this project but unfortunately she's being attacked when she's not responsible for any of the writing or the lies, end quote, Simone Kelly said. Um, again, there are uh, many issues being taken with um, the legacy that is being done through this biopic because they feel that biopics are kind of definitive when it comes to movie going. And again, this is why it's so important to take with a grain of salt based on a true story you are going to get the highlights yes nina simone lived in uh africa during a certain time and yes she struggled with some things and yes she eventually moves to europe and does make a comeback of sorts but the rest is dramatic interpretation based on whoever sold the rights and people you have to understand that, and it's good drama, and that drama should inspire you to go back and see like the documentary or go back and look up on her life and find out that stuff that actually fills in the gaps and makes sense and corrects any injustices that way. Um, but the interesting thing is, is that while Saldana is hispanic primarily she is also black and while that is a smaller part of her heritage to her it's still a very important part of her heritage and um i think that uh you know bashing someone for trying to bring 
life to an important person is not necessarily the way to go. If you're unhappy about the casting, talk to the casting director, the producers, or what have you. But um, I don't know, uh, Tim, were you aware of this project to begin with? Have you seen the trailer? Uh, do you know what's going on here? What do you think? You know, you know, I heard about it beforehand, but I didn't really know much about Nina Simone until we watched the documentary for the Oscar nominations. And it's very interesting. Did it say where, where Zoe Saldana's family is from? Like, where her... I actually looked it up. Because apparently, pa- Zoe uh, Saldana replaced Mary Dominican J. Republic, Dominican Republic in Puerto Rico. Okay. Uh, her father is from the Dominican Republic, which I believe is where she gets her African heritage as well. And then her mother is from Puerto Rico. And okay. she also has Haitian uh, Haitian in her family as well as Lebanese. Yeah, it says here that she replaced singer Mary J. Blige after Mary J. Blige dropped out. I don't know. I, I really don't know what to say without... Well, fair enough. I mean, again, uh, you know, I don't know that it's necessary. I just personally, I guess I just don't feel it's fair to attack her um, as like the sole, yeah, definitely. you know, thing. I mean, you, if you have a legitimate grievous with, grievance with the way, the, with the subject matter of the film or who was in charge of the casting or whatever, I mean, I think that's fine. But I just, I mean, all she did was do something that was important to her that she thought was a good project and she went and worked her ass off for it. Um, yeah, she's a great actress. So I mean, I'm sure she's. You know, I don't do think really you should well. be, you know, necessarily punishing her. Uh, but there and again, you know, when you're the face of something, I guess that's kind of how that goes too. So anyway, I'm gonna go ahead and close off my news there for time, and uh, we'll take my last piece and push it back for next week as well. Okay, uh, then I will close out the news with this little piece here about Ang Lee in his new film entitled Billy Lynn's Halftime Walk. I am very excited for this movie because, once again, Ang Lee is going to push the limits of filmmaking, technically. He did that with Life of Pi, and the end result of Life of Pi, he created a movie that it was deemed impossible to make a film of that book. And he did it visually. It's a stunning movie, and it's a moving movie as well. Uh, but from CinemaBlend.com, Hal Ang Lee is trying to change the way films are shown, written by Dirk Libby. And it says that as technology evolves, so does art. Movies went through revolutionary changes when sound was added. And again, when color became the norm for director Ang Lee, simply making one major change for his next movie isn't enough. Lee's next film, Billy Lynn's Halftime Walk, will be shown next month for the first time in its intended way. This means that it will be seen in 3D with a 4K HDR resolution and at 120 frames per second. Yes, I said 120 frames per second. While 3D in cinemas has become a fairly standard occurrence, your traditional movie theater projector creates the three-dimensional image by producing each of the two necessary images in an alternating fashion. At the Future of Cinema conference in Las Vegas, where Billy Lynn's Halftime Walk will be shown, video manufacturer Christie will be providing a dual laser projector which will allow for a significantly brighter image than a standard projector. According to The Hollywood Reporter, the 4,000 lines of resolution and with high dynamic range at 120 frames per second will be provided via 7th Sense servers. 
4K resolution has been around in movie theaters for several years, long before the resolution became popular on home television screens. High dynamic range imaging, a process by which the eye is able to register more subtle gradations of brightness, has also been around for a long time, but has recently begun to find more favor among television and film viewing. Probably the biggest shift that Ang Lee will be showing off in movie making is the 120 frames per second filming. Most movies are still shot at the cinema standard 24 frames per second, while some filmmakers have experimented with different film speed, as Peter Jackson did with The Hobbit in Unexpected Journey, which could be seen in some theaters at 48 frames per second. The 120 frames per second speed is significantly faster than even that. Each of these technologies on their own has the potential to make a significant change to movie watching in a theater. Uh, And I'm going to end that article there. It goes on a bit from there. If you guys are interested in the next best thing in when it comes to the movie-going experience, it's this. Same thing with home entertainment. It's not about 3D. Studios kind of abandoned the 3D concept because nobody wants to bother with the glasses and making sure you're sitting at the appropriate height and length away from the TV to really get the 3D effect. It's all about this new resolution, 4K HDR resolution. It's going to be the next big thing. You can't go from... 4K to more 4K, 4K to 4K HDR. And I am very much looking forward to seeing what he's doing with Billy Lynn's Halftime Walk. Because if you remember with Hobbit The Unexpected Journey, if you went and saw that in 48 frames per second, you'll notice that a lot, it kind of looked like a soap opera. Whenever the camera would move and follow the character, actually when just when any character would move across the screen, uh, screen it had this weird like hazy, fuzzy lag to it. That's not the technical term for it, but it it just looked weird, very much like what you would see on a soap opera. Well, with what he's doing, with what uh, Ang Lee and his team is doing with this movie, they're focusing on the science of it, exactly what your left and right eye will be seeing and how they will be seeing or viewing that picture. So I think it's going to be something both entertaining and absolutely spectacular when it finally gets released in the next, I guess, year. So yeah, that is my news. Again, if you want to read more about it, go to cinemablend.com. How Ang Lee is trying to change the way films are shown. Written by Dirk Libby. All right. Well, that is going to conclude the news and bring us to Did It Age Well? Alright, this time on Did It Age Well, we're going to be discussing 1985's Witness. And I would actually, Tim, I don't know how you would feel about this, but I would like to, uh, obviously not next week because we have something planned, but, uh, you know, a couple weeks from now or so, whatever. I'd like to revisit this as a Was It Worthy? Because this is a really interesting movie and actually was nominated for a whole slew of Academy Awards. And it actually won for Best Original Screenplay and Best Film Editing. And it was also nominated, it was nominated for Best Music, which I love. <laughs> and, yeah, and this is Harrison Ford's only Academy Award nomination as well. I know, it's a, it's a weird one. Yeah, so, I don't know, how do you feel about that? Should we revisit this as a, was it worthy as well? Oh, definitely, okay, for sure. Cool. I didn't, because, yeah, I didn't look into the other nominees or anything, so I, I don't know what to compare it to, but for 
So I'm just doing this as a did it age ball. But all right, we have a 1985 American crime thriller film uh, directed by Peter Weir. It stars Harrison Ford and Kelly McGillis. Uh, and again, this is Witness, the 1985 film. Uh, we also have uh, Lucas Haas is in this film. And we have a very young looking Danny Glover. Even though he would very shortly be too old for this shit. Um, and we also have a, a extremely young Vigo Mortensen in a very minor role here. Uh, and dear God, Tim, are you sure you're not related to Vigo Mortensen? Because this motherfucker, you two look a lot alike. Like it's scary. Well, um, we 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 both did grow up in an uh, Amish, in an Amish plantation, <laughs> yeah, well, in very, Pennsylvania. Very, must be all that good northern air. <laughs> uh, let's see here, and then a, a a very young Lucas Haas as well. And what we have here is a young Amish widow and her eight year old son are off to go visit. Uh, oh, this is Rachel Lapp, who's played by McGillis, and her and her son are off to go see. Um, her sister because she's expecting a baby uh, they have to travel from one part of the country to another so naturally they have to take a train uh, this is like a really big adventure for young Samuel play again played by Lucas Haas um, and by way of which he has the unfortunate chance and encounter of witnessing a murder and Enter Harrison Ford, who is uh, John Book in this film, Detective John Book. And through a rather unique interaction with the young boy, he actually finds out that there is, uh, it's not just a simple murder. And through a series of events, he finds himself actually taking, uh, hiding out, undercover as it were, back with... Rachel and her family on the Amish homestead to hide out and protect young Samuel and himself. So that's kind of the crux of the movie. And you have this, you know, very hard boiled, um, you know, detective, Philadelphia detective who now has to, uh, jump back 200 years and live Pennsylvania Dutch style. And the film is, it, it showcases just an entirely different method of filmmaking, uh, a whole nother way of pacing and just kind of demonstrating the idea of a character drama that has kind of thrilling elements to it. So, as we talked about, I mean, clearly this was nominated for some Academy Awards. It won a couple of Academy Awards and everything. And I, and so I'm thinking back to myself and I was like, it, I was kind of struggling a little bit with this movie because I, I remember watching this. Oh, I was probably, yeah, 13-ish by the time I got around to seeing this movie. So that would be about what, 1990, I guess. Um, and, I remember enjoying the movie. I especially remember enjoying the end of the movie with, you know, the shootout and everything. And I kind of found rewatching this movie over the last couple of days that it's slow. It's a, but 
But I don't mean slow as in it drags. I mean slow as in it's deliberate. And I I had forgotten what that felt like. And it wasn't frustrating, but it did require a bit of a reset. And so because of the way a lot of films are made today and the way the technologies and the pacings has changed and the way we view movies overall have changed so that even a drama doesn't play out necessarily as it would have 20 years ago or 30 years ago. It doesn't make them any better or worse. It's just how the process has evolved. And so once I got back into that rhythm and could just, you know, sit back and focus on the movie as it presents itself, I could get back into those characters. And even then, so the characters, the way, they're, I don't want to say they're not oversimplified, but just because they are so direct in their intentions and they're direct in their interactions and that interplay reflects itself on screen, that was also kind of jarring. And so you have all of these different elements that come together and tell just a very deliberate story that has this kind of kernel of a love story in between there too. And while it does come to its natural conclusion as a thriller, I have to say that this film did age well. It takes a little bit of getting used to, and I think that people who don't have that kind of patience um, to go back and look at this kind of film will enjoy it as much. But I think that people who really enjoy thrillers and enjoy cop serials and stuff will probably get a real kick out of seeing a movie uh, 30, 31 years ago, or a movie made 31 years ago, and watching how it plays out for an audience of today. So at the end of the day, I find that yes, Witness aged well. What do you got for us, Tim? I did not think it aged well. Mainly it's the music. Uh, the story is very predictable. Not necessarily predictable, but I think the, the movie structuring is very predictable. And it follows the same formulaic movie from the 80s, early 90s. And this is me saying this about the movie, rewatching it again Weeks ago. I think it's about, been about two or three weeks ago is when I decided to watch it. And I thought, God, this would make a great day to age well. Because it, in my opinion, it just really does not. Now, back in 1985, when Harrison Ford was swoon-worthy, when all the women and men, I'm sure, were all over him, he was like the Matthew McConaughey of 1985. And actually... Of what I was reading, uh, doing a little bit of research, like this was really the first movie where Harrison Ford actually got to do a bit of acting. So this was a turn for him. And like what Matt mentioned, he got nominated for an Academy Award. And I think that was a big reason why he got nominated because he really, this was him actually in a dramatic role. You know, he wasn't overly charismatic, too over the top, cracking jokes. He was actually playing this character, trying to help this young boy and his mother who he, he kind of develops this romantic relationship with but yet their love their love may not be love because or can it be love can it go somewhere because she is an amish lass from dutch pennsylvania where it was actually shot in intercourse lancaster strasburg pennsylvania <sighs> intercourse pennsylvania what a great town name but and this was also, I guess, more backstory. This was, uh, I think, Peter Weir's 
first film he did Gallipoli, he Australian filmmaker. He did a couple films with uh, Mel Gibson. So this was his first American film. So it was a new guy, Fresh Blood. He got nominated for an Academy Award. The movie got nominated for Best Picture. It won for Best Ad Editing and Writing. Now, what does save this movie, What I what is good about the film, I mean, overall, the movie is good, though it is dated. I think the performances are just fine. People praise the movie for how uh, authentic and real it felt, like the Amish folk. It seemed like the dialogue and what they were doing resembled exactly what Amish folk would be doing in 1985. I couldn't tell if maybe... Again, watching it now, because I've seen other Amish-themed movies, it felt like more like that was Kelly McGinnis playing Amish. That was that actor playing Amish. That was Viggo Mortensen in the background raising a barn trying to be Amish. (laughs) You know, like nobody... It didn't really feel... Even though they did use real Mennonites as extras... I just didn't feel like the core characters who were actually delivering the dialogue felt authentic. And again, they did again, use I... real Mennonites. What's that? They did re- use real Mennonites. The Amish... oh, that's what I said. Oh, okay. I was going to say because the Amish wouldn't participate because they're Amish and it's technology. So they actually went and got a whole bunch of local Mennonites to do it. And again, you know, at the time in 1985. For a while, I mean, I'm sure like this is something that was very unique. It was interesting. It was we're dealing with a group of people that a lot of people. I mean, nobody makes movies about them, so why not? It feels real. It looks real. We're being told it's real. Why not think it's real and enjoy it, and not really have any criticism towards it? And so it worked out. I, as a kid, I remember watching it, and I re- I loved this movie as a six seven or eight year old for some reason i thought it was entertaining i got a kick out of harrison ford kelly mcginnis for a couple scenes if you know what i mean yeah but watching it now it i think it's definitely the music it's the amish portrayal in the music that really kind of gets me it's the over-the-top 80s synth music synthesizer music but it's still a good movie and if you haven't seen it i do recommend you check it out but i'm gonna have to vote Nay, witness did not age well. Fair enough. Well, there you go, folks. I say yay, Tim says nay. So I guess you get to decide what you want to decide on that. (laughs) If you decide to go check it out. And I think, okay, so next week, though, uh, we are going to bring back a three squared. And we're going to be discussing our three favorite George Kennedy movies in honor of his passing. So that will be our bonus segment for next week. And without further ado, I believe it is time for the movies. Is it not, sir? Movie it on. Here we go, folks. It's the movies. So, this week's movies are Tangerine, The Duke of Burgundy, and 99 Homes. Where would you like to start, sir? How about 99 Homes? Right on, right on. 99 Homes is the 2015 American drama film directed by Ramin Barani, and it is starring Andrew Garfield, Michael Shannon, and to a lesser degree, Laura Dern. Uh, The film covers a young man by the name of Dennis Nash, who is, of course, played by uh, Andrew Garfield. 
He is a construction worker and un- fallen on hard times. And he has managed to get himself back into work. But unfortunately, the house that he and his mother and his son are living in is foreclosed upon. Enter the evil, uh, let's see, Rick Carver, right? Yes, yes, Rick Carver. Uh, he is played by Michael Shannon um, in a very, very interesting role. Um, kind of like the evil version of Leonardo DiCaprio in Wolf of Wall Street, I guess. Um, well, I mean, at least purposely evil, for whatever that's worth. Um, and his crew is there to evict them. It's a harrowing experience. Um, however, young Dennis shows some gumption. And it actually kind of impresses Mr. Carver, so he offers him a job. And thus, entering into the downward spiral is young Mr. Nash. Can he recover himself? What lengths will he go to to regain his own home and build his own life back up? And that's kind of the crux of the movie. So, for me... I found this movie to be pretty darn interesting. Like I said, it did kind of have a a very darker in tone Wolf of Wall Street kind of feel to it um, in terms of watching someone go from rags to riches um, and by using people. But whereas Wolf of Wall Street was 80s capitalism and excess done to the point of farce this is much more grounded in reality for the everyman who you know for people who can feel what it's like to struggle with their bills people who have been through foreclosure foreclosure people who have been actually evicted um these you know these are people who are going to see that and recognize this struggle um, it was interesting to see Andrew Garfield in a more grown-up role, especially when the last thing you remember seeing him in was a Spider-Man flick. Michael Shannon, once again, shows his range. Uh, he does just a phenomenal job. Laura Dern got a lot of critical acclaim for this role. But quite frankly, while I think she is, she was good as an actress with this character. I think that particular character was used a little bit too heavy handedly and was more of there just kind of a plot device. So while, and then again, that's nothing against her. I just think that that was that the character, the character's role in the story was wonky. Um, and I believe that, um, Ramin Barani did the best he could. I mean, I, he was also involved in the writing of the project, but, even that being said, um, she did well. I just didn't really like the part. The only other thing that I can say other than her being used as a plot device, which really for me kind of made the film feel a little wonky, is I felt like by the time it hits the third act and you really see where our, um, as you've heard me say a bajillion times before, Dennis is uh, Andrew Garfield's character. He plays Dennis Nash. He's kind of the dynamic character. He's the guy that you see go through all the changes and everything, right? He comes in one way, comes out another. And the and by the time you get to the third act where you kind of really see what what the cost is and the toll that it's taking and where you see him trying to trying to reset his moral compass, if not just 
go get a new one. I had a hard time buying it because he was actually doing a really convincing job at the beginning, but I don't know. I just didn't see him turning into the young mini me of Rick Carver played by Michael Shannon. Uh, and maybe he's not supposed to, but I think for something that is this in your face and heavy handed, it's got to be on point a hundred percent with these characters. And I would say that, Again, with the misuse of the character of Laura Dern's character, and I think the wonkiness towards the third act of Andrew Garfield's character, um, it didn't 100% work for me. Overall, though, the story is really interesting. Um, Michael Shannon is like holy shit crazy uh, in a good way, and I think that uh, I think that m very many people will enjoy it. Uh, for me, it comes out at four stars out of five. So there you go. What do you got there, Tim? Ninety Nine Homes is a really good movie. It's well acted and well produced. Uh, it's another interesting take on the whole housing crisis, I guess, and how important it is for those who only make a certain amount of money, how important their homes are to them. To them, it's a symbol of family, of unity for the family. And I think that's where the movie Strong Point lies. In knowing exactly where Nash's, uh, played by you know Andrew Garfield's character, is, is, is coming from, because Dennis's family's home gets taken away, gets repossessed by the bank, and he's working so hard to get that home back because he wants his son to go to the same school. He wants his son to have his old room again, and he just he likes that familiarity. Again, they don't make that much money, so they want to keep as much familiarity intact as possible. So the movie does that well. You, you know what he is fighting for for the most part. They have that down. What is he fighting for? Stability in his home. But what is this movie about? That's where the movie feels flimsy to me. As well as Rick and Dennis's relationship with one another. It, the relationship doesn't really amount to much by the end of the movie. Is the movie strictly about Dennis's moral compass being misguided in order to help his family? Or is the movie strictly about the relationship of Rick and Dennis and how Rick is actually corrupting Dennis in a particular way? I never really got the feeling that Rick Carver was a completely horrible human being to Dennis because really Rick Carver is just doing his job though he is not the best person and he does screw people over but he's not that all-out evil human being not as much as I would have liked to have seen because at the end of the movie the ending happens and you really don't feel much for either character because you really and it, it also feels like the movie didn't know really how to end because it just the movie crescendos and then it just kind of ends so you really don't know i, I mean i'm trying i don't want to spoil it but a decision is made by andrew garfield's dennis nash to where you wonder what the hell he was planning on getting out of that particular situation because of what he did he very well could have screwed over not only himself but his mother and son severely as well so that's what i mean by the movie felt flimsy it just didn't feel as strong as it thinks it is 
But still, it's a, it's a very good movie. It's well produced and it is well acted. I'm a firm believer that anything that Michael Shannon is in, do check it out. I'm starting to believe that Andrew Garfield is the same way. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing Andrew Garfield doing more dramatic roles. I know he's going to be in the upcoming Liam Neeson, Martin Scorsese flick called Silence later on this year. So that's going to be fun. But 99 Homes, I'm going to stay at 3.5 out of 5. It's still a very good movie, and I do recommend it. All right, where do you want to go from here, sir? How about Tangerine? Tangerine, the winner of the week. For me. Uh, 2015 American... Oh, no shit! Zone. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. I'm actually kind of surprised. What, you thought you were trying to sandbag me with the Duke of Burgundy and Tangerine, were you? No, I'm not sandbag. No. <laughs> maybe maybe some Arabian goggles. It's <laughs> uh, one of the funniest blowjob scenes ever in the world. All right. Um. Okay, so... Yeah, where was I? <laughs> Comedy drama, dramedy film. It's directed by Sean S. Baker, and it stars uh, Katana, Kiki Rodriguez, Maya Taylor, Karen Karagulian, Mickey O'Hagan, and James Ransom. Um, this is actually a very, very on-point film for today's day and age. And it, it deals with the lives of two transgendered women who are friends but at the same time uh going through very different i don't i don't know necessarily crossroads but as much as they're friends they're definitely dealing with two very different lives but the intersection of their friendship kind of overrides that uh we are dealing with uh transgendered sex worker uh cinderella like get it cinderella cinderella um she's just gotten out of jail and she goes to meet up with her friend alexandra and who is also transgender she is then telling her about she well she she inadvertently tells her that her boyfriend was boyfriend slash pimp was cheating on her while she was in jail that while cindy was in jail alexandra saying hey your boy cheated on you um it's kind of a funny thing because she didn't she didn't know so cindy had no idea she was just she like brings it up in a pretty funny way so anyway thus kind of begins this day from hell where cindy is going to track down this bitch who stole her man and literally drags her across town. literally drags her across town it's fucking awesome uh to face her boy Chester. Um, through this experience, she actually ends up kind of meeting new people, um, chiefly Dinah, the girl who Chester's cheating on her with, um, and also through Chester. But we also find um, a separate, we have kind of a separate subplot that takes place with a cab driver, right? He's a cab driver, right? Yes, he is uh, Russian. Rosmik, Ro- Ro- no, Ro- was right? Was it Rosm? Rosmik, no. Yeah, but he, he's Russian. He's Russian. Okay, for some reason I thought he was. Um, oh, he's Armenian or Armenian. Yeah. Okay, Armenian. That would make more sense. For yeah. some reason, I was thinking 
uh, more Middle Eastern than <laughs> uh, Slavic. All right. So anyways, he's an Armenian cab driver. Um, and his role in there is that um, he's, I mean, he's basically kind of got a thing for transgendered hookers. Um, and of course he has a life outside of this fetish uh, a life that will come to reckon with him by the end of that um so you have all of these different things that all end up kind of coming together uh by the end of the film everything comes to a head there's, you know, this huge kind of deal. And then there's the immediate fallout. A very classic, honestly, a very classic four-act play um, done in a style that is of today, using people of today and real, um, and, and no one faking anything. These uh, actresses are transgendered women in real life, and that in and of itself also lends a degree of credibility to this film that I don't think could have otherwise been attained. I think that the story itself with um, equally calibered actresses or actors playing the roles of transgender women would have been good, but the fact that they actually stepped it up a notch and brought this to the fore and said, look, these are real people and these are real lives. And oh my gosh, we can have people who can play these parts that are these kinds of people in real life too. Just like if I was to act like a fat nerd on a, you know, on a TV show, right? Nothing surprising there with movies like this in, oh gosh, five years, 10 years, that will be the norm as well. Yay. So good, good. But despite that, there are two major flaws for this film for me. Number one, I didn't like the pacing of the ending. I felt that with a story that was this funny and yet at times also this serious, that it needed more than just a... than, than just a status quo kind of ending. And I don't mean that to knock the film. It's just that I felt like I, I felt like that after this particular journey, this movie, this story needed to have a more solid ending than just kind of a let it be not even really thought provoking, just kind of like, ah, you know how it's gonna you know what's gonna happen in the future. No, let it actually have something solid. Let it carry on, even just one more scene, just to say, yep, lock it down, this is what you thought was going to happen, and yep, that's how it's going to be. I don't want to say anything more than that because I don't want to spoil it. The other thing that I that I didn't uh, that I really thought kind of hurt the film was its cinematography. The cinematography is is trying to be somewhat avant um, avant garde, and also because of its budget, it's a very very low budget film. Uh, it's doing it, it was you know trying to take as many big risks as it could with the with the budget that it had with the with the tech and the actual cameras and all of the um equipment and stuff that they had available to them and while i think that they still succeeded overall i still felt that um you know it was an a for effort 
B minus in application in terms of the cin- cinematography, but it's still really great characters. Um, I see definitely some really good performances that could just absolutely turn into amazing actors um, that and actresses coming out of this film. So I give this one 4.25 out of five. I had a damn good time watching this movie for two reasons. One, the entire movie was shot on four different iPhones because of those budget things that Matt kind of touched on. They wanted to secure like all the locations and stuff. For example, the donut time, which is the centerpiece of the movie. They shot on four iPhones. There's an app. I can't remember the name of the app, but it's used to pull focus within the iPhone and actually do some basic cinematography with it. And then they then they use like this fairly inexpensive uh, software to edit the movie. And I think it just kind of added to the authenticity of the film because the nature of the story itself. Because these characters are real people. The area that they're in is a real area where you can find these people. I know this because I lived blocks away from that donut time. I've been to that donut time. I know everywhere they went, everywhere they walked, I had an absolute blast being able to pinpoint exactly where they were. And and whenever, uh, oh, I forget her name, uh, the girl, the the one who found out her pimp was cheating on her, when she is going all around town, hopping on the bus, hopping on the on the subway, it made sense. It was a lot of fun seeing her get on something and then get off uh, in a new part of Hollywood. <laughs> I just had a blast watching it because it made kind of sense watching her circle around. And I know this makes no sense to the listener right now, but. I had a very good time, not strictly because of that, but because of that, it aided my good time knowing the logistics of getting around from place to place. So those are the two reasons why I had a good time watching this movie, the locations and the use of the iPhones. Because like I said, these are real people. In fact, the performers in this movie are transgender. And they basically got the job after meeting the director in a local, not a club, but I think, I don't know if it was like a transgendered meeting or, or something like that in Hollywood. It's wonderfully authentic. So the movie is electric storytelling and the performances are electric. And the movie is touching by the film's end uh, especially the last half of the movie, there's some fun little uh, touching moments. Or I guess I should say touching, touching moments. Uh, the movie is well-produced and staged. The, there's some great spitfire dialogue that made for what I thought was a rousing good time. I felt that some of the sporadic editing and the, some of those sporadic touching moments and characterization, though, felt more like filler and there just to aid the unpolished ending. Because like what Matt was saying, and I'm not talking about the final moments of the movie. In fact, I really like the final moments because of these people that they are portraying, these characters that they are portraying. It only makes sense. Maybe I understand it, the last shot especially, because I've seen things kind of like this. <laughs> I don't know, but it just worked. My only main problem with the movie, which is a semi-biggish problem in the last act, 
doesn't have the same zip and pizzazz as the first couple acts. And that is a big problem. You have a movie that's constantly moving forward, then they reach their ultimate goal, and then the movie kind of felt like more of a parody at times, I guess. I give Tangerine 3.75 out of 5. It's a very interesting movie, and I do not think you will regret watching it. So do check it out. All right. Well, then that is going to leave us with The Duke of Burgundy, which is the loser of the week for me. But not by much. Not by much. I mean, you know. They can't all be winners, now can they? Uh, this is actually a 2014 British drama film. It's written and directed by Peter Strickland. And it stars uh, Sidzi Bamkit Knudsen and Shiar Diana. Um, this is a, a very interesting story about two lovers. And these two women have a very unique relationship. One that is... Not quite clear at the beginning, but I don't know, within about 10 minutes or so, uh, you've kind of begun to understand it. And then it just kind of explores the idea of, I don't want to say master-slave relationship, but definitely dominant-submissive. And yet how those roles kind of rely on each other and what they actually do uh, to a relationship when it's when it kind of consumes a relationship. So we have these two women. Uh, Shiara Diana is Evelyn. She's a younger woman who is dating um, Cynthia. Um, and she has kind of this... Okay, so she is basically kind of acts as a maid, but she, but whenever she screws up, she is punished and everything. But of course, she kind of likes the punishment. And yet, there's more underlying tones to that where it turns out that Evelyn is kind of, is basically kind of the driving force between this dominant submissive relationship where Evelyn is playing the submissive. So, Again, it's kind of like an interesting dynamic in that idea. Cynthia, however, is kind of in a in a not a rut necessarily, but in regards to the relationship, she's more kind of going along to getting to, you know going along to get along, and so it kind of creates this tension. And the whole film is kind of just this one set on another set that just kind of builds as a result of this back and forth. Um, that manifests itself in different ways within the relationship. Now, the one thing that is absolutely superb about this film is the cinematography. I thought, man, shot for shot, this thing was just 100% well thought out. Um, also, the production design, the art design that went into setting up this stuff so that the cinematography was as good as it was, clearly top-notch. And again, this was a relatively small budget in terms of, um, you know, big budget and stuff, but literally about 10 times the budget of Tangerine, to give you an idea of where we're at. The only problem here for me, though, what really kind of holds this film back is that instead of really being an eye-opening, 
insight into a relationship of this nature and what it does to people, it just kind of felt like it was trying way too hard to be provocative. And, you know, running around being a provocateur can be useful, but only to a certain point. If you're just trying to get the people in the door so that you can show them something that's worthwhile, okay. I don't think that's the way to go every time, but, you know, at least to get their attention, that's fine. But it just kind of seems, as I said, as the movie builds and builds and builds, it's just kind of reaching out to make you feel like, really, they're doing that now? Wait a minute, there's a box? What? And it's, but it's, and it's not just blatant shock value, but it's not really doing anything to add to it. So despite decent, very decent performances uh, from the two leads and an interesting premise, I just felt like it didn't, it just didn't execute very well. It's beautifully shot, wonderful to look at, but with a story that goes nowhere, I give this one 3.75. It's a very likable movie with, again, likable characters that's well done. But for me, the story, the story is hard to get through, especially by the end. But I really, I can really say that I enjoyed it. So 3.75. What do you got there, Tim? Wow. The Duke of Burgundy is an erotic but deeply intricate character study of two women wanting different things out of their relationship. One's love is based in her own erotic fantasies, while the other would like a more conventionally structured relationship. It's an erotic film that's smart without being graphic. Believe it or not, you don't see any womanly body parts. Though the movie is called Duke of Burgundy or The Duke of Burgundy, there are no men anywhere to be found. So the erotic nature of the film stems from the characters in their story, not from any particular sexual act. The cinematography, camera work, character blocking, and the music is where the erotic nature stems from. These characters are richer than your run-of-the-mill sex flick. I wouldn't even consider this an art flick. It's a film that deserves a spot alongside those provocative European erotic films of the 1970s, when an art flick was more prestigious than pretentious. It's lastly a film that doesn't attempt to be anything more than it actually is, and it looks exceptionally gorgeous while doing so even though it loses its steam by the credit roll. So I give this one 3.75 out of 5 as well. I highly recommend this one. I mean, though it ties with Tangerine, I'm going to have to say this one is my favorite of the week. Right on, right on. You said wow when I said 3.75 was because you were surprised or that i was surprised well because i thought like all right well i'm giving it all this praise i really don't criticize it until the last two seconds 
<laughs> and oh. so I thought, okay, well, 3.75, you know, that that's a fair rating. And so you're going through yours, and I thought, he's going to give it a 3. Nope, 3.75. So I was just kind of surprised. <laughs> well, I mean, because it, it is a decent movie, despite, like, I, yeah, I, I'm not going to hash it over again. It is a very decent movie. I just, it has issues. What are you going to do? <laughs> All right. Well, that is going to take care of the movies for this week. Next week's movies are going to be 10 Cloverfield Lane and Zootopia, both in theaters now. Also, by way of Amazon Instant, if you are an Amazon Prime member, uh, you will be able to also do Macbeth, which is the... Um, uh, Michael Fassbender. Thank you. Good Lord. Michael Fassbender version of this film so that's what we're doing for next week and i think that will bring us to the spiel will it not sir spiel on all right well the music you'll be listening to for our segment intros and outros and all that wonderful stuff is from our music partners crew rise of solace as always you can check them out at reverbnation.com and facebook.com both slash cries of solace as for us we are of course the sls cast and you can find us at slscast.com you can send us an email to the show at slscast.com you can even follow us on twitter at the slscast you can also follow me this is matt on twitter at nitwit12345 you can climb aboard that information superhighway and track down tim on twitter if that is your heart's desire and don't forget you can always subscribe to us on itunes and or favorite us on stitcher radio so until next week this is matt saying that thanks to michael shannon i get to say this everybody's constantly being destroyed and rebuilding themselves some more drastically than others take care cinephiles and we'll talk at you again next week Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.